0: Here's the thing though. Hello, hello, hello and welcome to another episode of our podcast, Here's the Thing Though. My name is Saliha and I'm your host for today. I'm here with my producer slash editor, Mitch Price. Hey. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Darug and Kuringai people who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people past, present and future and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. So Mitch, how are you? How's it going?
1: I'm a bit hungry.
0: <laughs> a little a bit?
1: bit uh, just a little bit.
0: I'm very hungry. You're
1: very hungry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we have that in common, as I'm sure with many other people right now.
0: Yeah, because it's day seven of Ramadan, fasting away. I feel like I've actually been doing pretty well the last few days. think I've adjusted... But just today in particular, I'm struggling. And it's so – maybe it's because I knew I'd be recording today and, like, psychologically because I had anxieties around it. My body's like, oh, you're concerned about your throat dry and, like, you know, feeling a bit thirsty? Well, guess what? Now it's happening. So, I I mean – I feel like I just did this to myself. I kind of manifested my own issues at the moment, which is a little unfortunate because I have been fine the last few days. I get really hungry in the last half hour of the day, but I'm like already cooking at that stage and I'm about to eat anyway. So for the most part, I've, I've been finding it all right. What about you, Mitch?
1: Um, Yeah, it's been more difficult than last year. I feel like last year, it was, uh, for me, it was just fairly straightforward, fairly easy. But this year, for some reason, I'm just... Uh, I'm struggling some of the days. Surprisingly, I was really concerned about like doing a long eight hour shift at my retail job, but that was actually the easiest day yes. because I was just so distracted. And yeah. it's actually the days where I don't have anything on or I'm doing like an intellectual task, like mm. recording this podcast or studying that I'm just counting down the hours so I can make some food. But the worst part is, is that by the time, you know, 5.30 or wh- whenever it comes, I'm my hunger is dissipated. The hour before that I'm starving. But then when I get there, the hunger's gone. I'm like, why can't like why couldn't this either have come hours ago? Or why can't you just let me enjoy my food? Like yeah. I've been waiting for this moment.
0: Yeah, no, it's really rough. I feel like starvation mode finally kicks in. Your body's like, okay, well, I guess if you're not going to feed me, I will give up. And it's like, no, <laughs> why now? This I've been the same. I feel like I'm so looking forward to the food I'm going to eat. i have this like amazing, like layout to all the food I'm going to eat. And then when it, t- when it comes time to eat, suddenly like I can't eat and I eat like one samosa. My stomach's like, oh, I'm so full. And it's like, no, <laughs> I have been waiting for this all day. Do not ruin this for me. Uh, which has been very annoying, but I think you're so right in terms of like working in retail. It's been kind of fine just because I'm distracted and busy. I have struggled a little bit with just like the pace of movement, especially if you're talking to customers a lot. I'm just having a lot of trouble with a lot of like talking because my mouth gets a bit dry and I get uh, quite headachey. But those days have been easier than the days that I'm just like at home writing articles or like working on something where I'm not really moving, but my brain is doing all the work because I just get like mad brain fog and I'm just struggling.
1: Yeah, no, I feel that for sure. But anyways, let's hopefully get through this task without (laughs) our voices being uh, too croaky. Yes, my
0: apologies in advance if I just sound like I'm really dehydrated because I am. (laughs) Anyway, let's get into some follow-up for today. I have a couple of things I want to bring up that I talked about briefly in my live last night, but I want to talk about again because it's important. Uh, The first thing I want to talk about is... A 7 News Brisbane story that went up maybe three or four days ago that I came across on Facebook. It's like a video segment from Channel 7 News, and the title is Calls for Cops in Kindergarten to Identify Youth Criminals. Huh. Huh. So it's a news story about introducing police officers into kindergarten classrooms around four, five, and six-year-olds in order to catch... At, at risk or quote potential offenders early um, as some kind of early intervention strategy for crime right to like spot these little criminals before they actually do any serious damage and it is such an indictment of the police and how much we don't need them because these people seriously have nothing better to do than terrorize black and brown babies like have you met a kindergarten student they are actual like toddlers they are so small they are like knee height and tiny and they can't even read like they don't they're just learning their alphabets these are like threats that we have to send in the police to like investigate i mean just the whole issue like there are so many things wrong with this new segment it is so obviously racist but like the first i think a most obvious issue was just like talking about four-year-olds and calling them not children but potential offenders like how are we criminalizing babies what is a four-year-old gonna? Is, and they're also talking about mind you serious crimes like they're not talking about like shoplifting like stealing a chocolate bar or something they're talking about like intervening to stop these children from committing serious crimes is a four-year-old murdering somebody is a four-year-old like robbing a bank like taking what It was just so absurd. It was so ridiculous on so many levels. And I'm, like, laughing as I say it, but it was actually really, really infuriating. Well,
1: it's, like, suggesting that criminals or, like, certain types of babies have a predisposition to crime.
0: Okay, and I was just about to get to that. So, in going about why I think this was incredibly racist... Like the issue with this new segment is that it's already only showing us black and brown children getting handcuffed. It's immediately selling us the imagery that these are the potential offenders that we are concerned about. Then it cuts so after showing us pictures of like aboriginal kids getting handcuffed that are like literally got to be like 8 years old and then it cuts to an- this old white guy talking about fetal alcohol syndrome and how this creates a predisposition to crime in young children. Like, pairing fetal alcohol syndrome with images of a black kid is clearly, like, so racist against the First Nations community. Like, it makes me so angry whenever, like, any of these fucking white men, especially these old dinosaurs, start talking about, like, alcoholism in the First Nations community. Because it's like, first of all, have you seen yourselves? And second of all, like, this is what happens after you colonize people. If, for some reason, a First Nations person is alcohol-dependent, like, how do you think that happened? Like, this is not a moral judgment on that person. This is like the outcome of a society that was built on their subjugation. Like, it's your people that did this. And so it just made me so angry already because it immediately demonizes First Nations children, babies, which we're literally talking about kindergarten children. And then again, it cuts to the, I'm pretty sure it was the police union officer. I may be wrong about that, but they were talking about aggressive four-year-olds they literally used the term aggressive um and talked about children who quote commit serious crimes and how they should quote face the consequences and be held accountable for their actions what is a four year five six year old doing where they need to be like held isn't the whole point of like dolly and k-packs isn't the whole point of that that children can't be held accountable for their actions because they are little children and their brains aren't developed yet and they aren't really capable of decision-making or, like, forethought in any capacity. Like, I just can't believe that we are actually having conversations right now about black and brown children and how they need to pay for their crimes. And on top of that, and this is where I want to talk about what Miss just mentioned now, with, like, um, you know, children having a predispossession to crimes is that when it talks about budding offenders and it actually like legitimately quotes kids that are doomed to be criminals, it's referring to eugenics. Like this is eugenics. This is the idea that a group of people are inherently biologically gonna be criminals. Like this is how for generations like fucking white colonizers have justified the locking up, the torture, the abuse, the sterilization of ethnic minorities because their argument has always been that these people are dangerous to us inherently. You know, it's this like nature nurture argument, but it's just nature. Like just, I mean, you guys have probably heard if any of you like studied a bit of psych, like people used to measure the circumference of like African men and that would like tell us.
1: Of their skulls. Of their
0: skulls, sorry. And that was-
1: <laughs> <laughs> How wide are <do> you?
0: <laughs> so I didn't even like, it didn't even occur to me that that could refer to anything else, but you're right. <laughs> um, but yeah, like measuring the skulls or heads of African men and they're talking about how animalistic or like savage or intelligent or whatever this made them. Like this is all eugenics. And then on top of that, like, it's also just reminiscent of all these, like, think about the research we've had lately about the school to prison pipeline. This is a really big thing in America, for those of you who don't know about it, because America obviously has cops fucking everywhere, including in high schools. And it's pretty normal to have security checks and security guards in high school, especially in lower socioeconomic majority, like, ethnic high schools. Um, And there's this thing called the school to prison pipeline, where basically, like, it's obviously ethnic kids and particularly black kids that are disproportionately going to face consequences for quote-unquote actions or whatever they're gonna be punished for things um be suspended expelled given detention whatever these kids are then alienated from the school system and inevitably will fall into crime or like into circles of crime happen because it's kind of the only place that they know and also it's a place they're constantly sent to by these racist police officers and it's just this discussion about how like increased policing is what causes crime essentially And I just feel like we know this. We have like decades of research on this. It is something that you learn if you do like pretty much any humanities degree at university. Uh, it's pretty common knowledge for a lot of people that are interested in humanities and the way society works. And so it was just so shocking that we're, av- we're even having this conversation, that there are, there is even like a small amount of people in our like ruling class that think it's a good idea to have police officers in kindergartens to to terrorize, because that's what they're going to do. They're going to terrorize black and brown children. And like the timing of this as well really infuriates me because this has come out, like days after protests for the death of Adam Toledo in America, who was a 13-year-old kid that was murdered by the cops, right? This We're currently having a conversation right now on an international level about the demonization, the criminalization of black and brown boys. Like we are having that conversation and we are talking about how it's so ridiculous and dangerous that we like make these children seem like they're adults, like they're inherently offenders when they're just fucking children right so for this to come out just after that and just after a recent q a episode about the growing threat of white terrorism and how in australia at the moment the face of terrorism is actually white men like it is a right-wing extremism that is the biggest terror threat at the moment in australia and also in america so to have these two like political events happen one where we're like being critical of the way we treat black and brown boys and youth in general, and then also talking about the threat of white terrorism. Like, it cannot be a coincidence that a week after that, we're having Channel 7 put up a story about how actually the real danger of black and brown four-year-olds they're actually who we should worry about let's distract from the conversation of white terrorism let's distract from the conversations of black lives matter and let's have a conversation about how these kids are inherently you know at risk of becoming criminals and we need to do something about it it's just so insidious and also something else i wanted to bring up as well is how it's really topical right now the age of criminal responsibility and how we want to raise it because it is dispor- disproportionately used against aboriginal kids currently in australia the age of resp- criminal responsibility is 10 years old it's one of the lowest in the world you and I think, recommends around 14. And so this is, again, a really topical thing that's being pushed right now, especially by the First Nations community, to try and avoid having young Aboriginal boys be targeted by the cops and thrown into prison. Um, and just as we're having conversations about raising the age of criminal responsibility, these people are talking about how actually these kids are all just criminals.
1: Yeah, no, I think you're entirely right. And just listening to you talk makes me think of like three things specifically. Like firstly, like this is fascism in the strictest yeah. sense of the word. But anyways, it, like it's suggesting that criminality is like a real thing. Like it's it's a it's a temperament yes. that you're born with. Like that's of course not true. Like like everyone knows that what like what's a crime in one country isn't a crime in another country. It's all socially determined. And it's and if you are a criminal or if you are have a predisposition for quote-unquote criminality, it's because of social conditions and not like biological conditions. Exactly. But then the other thing is while I'm no expert on the subject, does this not seem potentially ableist as well?
0: Yes. Okay. I'm so glad you brought this up. I completely agree.
1: Because like, I was going to say, I'm not sure uh, exactly when potential disabilities are able to be uh, diagnosed, but it seems like if a kid is potentially on, on the spectrum, is that like antisocial behavior and they're going to grow up to be a terrorist mm. or such? And, is that, and that's going to be further... A further, more problematic intersection with uh, racism, you know, with a brown kid versus a white kid.
0: No, but also, like, speaking of ableism, I mean, also with things like ADHD, which can often be diagnosed quite late. And it's like, if we're going to talk about quote unquote aggressive kindergarten students, like some boys with ADHD will have like temper tantrums. And like that tantrums, first of all, are just normal for that age. Like my sister is six and she's only just stopped having tantrums. It's normal. So we're going to have like little kids throwing tantrums and they're immediately branded criminals. And then on top of that, kids with ADHD, kids with learning disabilities, kids with like, Issues kind of regulating their moods, kids that are on the spectrum, like all these kids are going to have different social needs, they're going to respond to situations in different ways, they're going to respond to threats in different ways, because a police officer in their classroom monitoring them for bad behavior is a threat, and those kids are obviously not going to be able to follow instructions well either, like say a kid starts to behave, quote unquote, aggressively, and then a cop steps in. And tells them to like stop or whatever those kids are gonna get scared and like act out which is normal for a child and they're gonna be branded like aggressive dangerous children when they are just responding to the stimuli you know so i mean the whole the whole thing is just dystopian very fascist we know we live in a fascist society but this is outright fascism and all its glory and I recommend not reading the comments on that because you would be surprised how many people – well, you wouldn't be – but how many people are in the comments being like, I know we need to control these unruly youth, all these fucking white boomers in those comments infuriating.
1: Unsurprising.
0: Probably Unsurprising. just good
1: advice to everything. Don't read the comments. <laughs>
0: Don't read the comments. Uh, moving on to the second part of our follow-up is <laughs> we're going to talk about this new consent video or videos that I'm sure you've all heard of if not watched – by now so as you would have known if you listen to literally any of our past episodes in the last like two months we have consistently been talking about the sexual assault allegations and like just continuous traumas happening in the parliament at the moment in australia and how we just have this really huge misogyny issue at the moment and it's really been at the forefront of the news lately because like several women have come forward and talked about being sexually assaulted by members of the parliament or even at the parliament So this is a really big issue right now, it's really topical. Just to give you a bit of a recap, there was a push to have consent education introduced in schools because clearly we have an issue with misogynistic boys and men assaulting and raping women and girls. So after a viral petition kind of hit the government, they released just yesterday a educational consent video that is supposed to be shown at high schools and whatnot to teach young people, teenagers about consent. It is just so terrible and so bizarre and utterly useless. I don't even know where to start. Like, it's an—it's in, actually insulting. I feel like I'm going to start with how I felt when I watched it. The video that I watched, because there's two. There's one about a milkshake and there's one about a taco. I've not seen the taco one. I don't plan to see the taco one. The one about the milkshake, though, I have seen. And it's a consent video where a woman, who is the perpetrator, by the way, in this consent issue basically smears her milkshake all over a guy because he said, no, I don't want your milkshake. And she was like, well, I want you to taste it. And then like, this is supposed to be the allegory for sexual assault. There are so many things wrong with this video the first thing is the fact that the woman is the perpetrator and the male is the victim i just felt like that was so insulting and such a slap in the face and just an active fuck you to the women who pushed for this to happen because it was predominantly women and sexual assault survivors like female sexual assault survivors that pushed for consent education to happen at schools like it is predominantly and very much women that want this And they want this because of the danger that men pose to them. This is how this has come forward. So for the government to be like, okay, fine, we will give you the video. But men are the victims. You are the bad guys. It's a pushback. It's like, we don't want to do this. But if we have to do this, we're going to do it our way. And we're going to paint women to be the perpetrators. Absolutely absurd. Like insulting even because it is like there's no other way to look at it. You did not make a video where about consent where the woman is the fucking perpetrator when the video is for men, unless like you kind of want to fuck with women. Somebody, one of our listeners mentioned to me that perhaps they did it because men are just so incapable of feeling em- empathy towards a woman that maybe they made the man a victim in the hopes that men would kind of understand better what it feels like to be violated, which I disagree with. I think we're giving the government too much credit by having that opinion i highly doubt they thought that far ahead for this video because it takes only a minute watching it to realize how little research has gone into this it's actually been criticized by like people who teach consent by actual experts who have said there is like i don't know where you've got this information from there is like literally no backing to this this is like not created by experts it was not developed by people that actually know what they're talking about you 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 just threw this together like what the hell is this um so i actually think we would be giving the government too much credit to even think that there was actually some form of legitimate good reason to have the male as a victim in terms of empathy. I highly doubt it, highly doubt it. I also want to mention that like, it doesn't even make sense. <laughs> the video is like so confusing. It's so bizarre. Like the way they've decided to explain consent just doesn't make sense. They talk about like moving the line, which is not something I've ever heard of in learning about consent. It just, I wonder, I do wonder, and this is probably me being just way too cynical, but I'm going to say it anyway. I do wonder if this is purposefully made, like it's purposely made consent confusing as almost a defense against our rapey parliament members, like to show that it's confusing and therefore not their fault if they misunderstood a situation and raped somebody. Like, see how hard consent is to understand, guys? See, we told you it's so difficult. It's really not difficult. And like, young children tend to understand consent pretty well if you just tell them what it is. And then this is for teenagers. Yeah,
1: the explanation is just so poor with like this diagram of this plane. And I, I don't even know how to describe it really. It's just so it's strange. It's so
0: convoluted. It's bizarre. Like the only word I can think of is bizarre.
1: Because the, the, the message is essentially don't make decisions for other people, which is mostly straightforward. But then you have to use this diagram of like, you know, on the right side is the no uh section, the no area, and then here's on the the other side is the yes area, In between is the absent I don't know area. So when you make a decision for someone else, you're expanding, you're you're towing the line, you're pulling over the yes area,
0: and you become into an the no active area, agent,
1: which creates the whole area, which makes the entire plane yes, which doesn't give the other person the autonomy to say no. Like, did you follow that? Is no. this just not? S- <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense.
0: And also, like. Just the setup of it is super weird as well because it looks kind of poppy. The acting is bad. The scripting is weird and like just a weird innuendo as well with a milkshake. I just feel like the imagery is icky. Her smearing a milkshake on his face and being like, oh yeah, I know you like my milkshake is so uncomfortable and weird and clearly a sexual innuendo, but also nobody in this video actually wanted to mention sex, even though it's very much about sex or it's meant to be about sex. And then on top of all that, just to make it even more surreal and bizarre, there's this weird satirical British voiceover that sounds like a voiceover you'd hear in like a children's cartoon, like Peppa Pig or something. You know, when there's like a narrator, like in Charlie and Lola, like that kind of vibe. It's so strange. Well, I
1: was thinking the whole thing with like its poppy colors and a bit off-kilter acting just felt like a budget Wes Anderson. (laughs) short film or something it was very strange
0: well it felt like it was satire right it felt like it was making fun of a consent video but it was like totally unironic but it felt ironic it was so strange and something else i wanted to mention something that is probably one of the more frustrating things about this video is like how much it really kind of makes a mockery of sexual assault because this milkshake situation is not a good metaphor in any capacity and there have been other good metaphors in the past with like drinks that have worked. A lot of you have probably seen the tea consent video. Um, If you haven't, look it up. I feel like that's actually a really good video. It's quite tongue in cheek. It's also a little bit silly, but it really gets at the heart of the problem and it shows the absurdity and the like downright evilness of ignoring somebody's consent. It's really good. That could have been what, like this could have been that, but it wasn't. And I just think I know they're capable of doing better because like when I was in year 10 and I did Crossroads in high school, which most like Australian teens probably did. It's about like driving safety for us. And they like outright traumatized me. Like they would show us videos of like mangled bodies and cars and they would recreate a car crash and then get like eight paraplegic people to come in and tell you how traumatized they are. And that, you know, you could kill somebody like me. So be careful. It's really horrific. This is the reason I don't have my license. I have such bad car anxiety because of crossroads and high school, they are capable of making an impact. Maybe that was too much of an impact. But like when it comes to consent, we have weird, vague, almost satirical like metaphors of milkshakes. Just say it, what it like just talk about rape and sex because the whole point of talking about consent is to show you the damage you could actually be doing to somebody by raping them. Like it's not, we're trying to humanize women here because a huge part of the consent conversation with these young boys and men is they don't really see women as people. So when they rape them, they don't really care about those women's feelings they don't really care that they're hurting that person there usually isn't understanding that they are raping somebody but they just don't seem to care that's the issue here and i feel like when you give us a milkshake metaphor it just trivializes the issue because nobody cares about milkshakes i don't care like i'm not gonna like watch it and be like i can't believe she smeared it like she's traumatized him for life by smearing that milkshake on him like Rape is so serious and I just feel like it minimizes it and they are capable of giving us serious conversations like we have had with the car safety. I don't see why we can't have something of similar severity with rape and sexual assault because it is just as serious.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like I would prefer they just talked about, you know, sexual assault in relatively blunt terms, but I get the reason they'd want to do this like allegorical like discourse. But my issue is, is that firstly, the milkshake metaphor is just is far too conceptually removed from the situations people will be finding themselves within. Like you won't be able to recognize that you're in this situation from this video. Like it it should reflect the actual experiences that people will probably have in their life. And furthermore, the flipping of the gender uh, further removes like this scenario from what is typically going to be ex- uh, expected yeah. from these type of scenarios uh, in everyday life. So yeah, it just seems pointless and at worst, potentially dangerous.
0: Yeah, I I would argue that it's actively harmful. Anyway, let's move into today's topic for uh, Minnesota. Uh, One of you lovely Instagram followers at Leisha underscore Smith asked me to talk about the privilege of passing and this whole too white to be brown, too brown to be white issue that a lot of ethnic people face. I actually have quite mixed feelings about this. There are quite, I think there's some complicated politics around white passing and around ethnic identity. So let's get into it. There are obviously benefits to having proximity to whiteness. This is probably like not very debatable and we've talked about this in the past. I've talked about this in the past. And if you're listening to our podcast series, you probably already understand. You know, if you look white or you have proximity to whiteness, you are less likely to be racially profiled, less likely to be rejected for jobs, less likely to be sought out and identified slash attacked by racists and white supremacists. Like the the actual dangers and risks and harm that come from being an ethnic person visibly just just the visible angle do become reduced and can almost disappear depending on how white passing you are. But it is like kind of a key thing to understand that like you don't just have all the white privilege that white people have if you are like a white passing ethnic person. It's just the stuff that's visible that disappears. You're still a victim of like generational trauma. You're still a victim of just all the other kind of systemic ways that ethnic people have been brutalized over centuries by whiteness. And I wanted to say that because I think a lot of ethnic people like myself who are not white passing and who are not half white or anything like that um, can kind of diminish the experiences of mixed race or white passing ethnic people and diminish their identity as well. And I feel like this is kind of topical and maybe controversial thing to say, but I think it's worth talking about. So I kind of wanted to get into the term white passing because it's become quite trendy. I'm seeing a lot on TikTok at the moment because all the 17 to 15 year olds have discovered it and it's becoming problematic the way it's being used. I feel like white passing initially was used to describe ethnic people that looked white and not just like vaguely looked white, like an ethnic person that you probably wouldn't guess is ethnic. And that's pretty like standard way of using it because those people, those ethnic people tend to get further like in society without facing racism because they fit in with white people. But the more it's kind of being co-opted in a lot of ways, the less I'm sometimes you like the word white passing. The definition of white passing, it grows and shifts constantly. Like the definition of whiteness grows and, ki- and shifts constantly, which we know because, I mean, like 50 years ago, Greek and Italian people were considered ethnic and not white. And now we kind of see them as white. Uh, I mean, look, that again, slightly controversial. I know there's this whole spicy mayo issue. I'm not going to bother getting into it. The point is the definition of whiteness shifted over time. Irish people are now considered white. They were not considered white like 100 years ago. And that's really important to understand when we talk about white passing because currently the definition of white passing is changing and whiteness tends to absorb things that it likes and turns them into quote unquote white, like Irish, Italian, Greek people, and now a lot of ethnic features. I've been seeing this a lot on TikTok especially, and I really dislike it. I've seen a lot of biracial girls, girls who are half black, half white, that to me look ethnic, like these girls are obviously like at least half ethnic like to me it's pretty obvious but they get accused of being white passing because the features that they have are like Kylie Jenner features and even just having to call them Kylie Jenner features I think is part of the problem like people who literally just have their own ethnic features are told they are white passing because the white people are stealing those features co-opting them and passing them off as their own it's common with a lot of like mid-toned ethnic women who have like big lips big eyes long lashes big brat stall vibes but are like just tan and not like darker than tan they're told they're white passing because like white girls these days are tanning to this level and are getting lip fillers and are getting fucking fox eye trend like vibes and it's just it's like Kylie Jenner who like five years ago we would have thought she looks like an ethnic woman, but she is a white woman. We know she's a white woman. She's changed her face to look like black women. And now she's the image of white women. And so we've shifted the idea of what white people look like. And they don't look like this, but it's become so easy to adjust your features now. And because looking mixed race is in and so many white girls, especially, And I know I keep talking about white women, but it's because I find this conversation tends to be directed at white women in particular more so than it is, or women in general, than it is like mixed race men. I feel like this is a very gendered conversation when we talk about what you look like. So I'm going to be specific to white women here and ethnic women here. Like, white girls have co-opted traits typically associated with ethnic women. And now ethnic women who have those traits are called white passing. There was a TikTok I was watching the other day of a Pakistani girl who people were like, oh my God, you look just like Kylie Jenner and you don't look Pakistani at all. And she's like, I look like me. I don't look like Kylie Jenner. In fact, Kylie Jenner looks like me. She bought my face was kind of the conversation. And while to not validate like dissing people who have plastic surgery, it is a really important conversation we're having right now about who actually looks like this. Because nowadays, I feel like I see white passing used to describe ethnic features that white people stole. And then we like, uh, these poor ethnic girls are getting hated on just for like existing the way they are because now they're considered white passing because they like have a nice golden tan and they naturally have almond shaped eyes. It's not a Fox eye trend. Like it's just, there are things there are traits right now that like a white passing that five years ago would have been considered black. There was another TikTok, I'm going to keep bringing up TikTok, but I feel like I'm seeing a lot of this discourse on TikTok, which is why I'm bringing it up. I saw a TikTok the other day that was like, remember in the early 2000s where like the correct answer to does my butt look big in this was no? And that blew my mind because I was like, oh my God, that's so true. Like literally in every rom-com in the early 2000s, like the white woman's fear was having a butt. These women wanted flat asses. like Because that was considered like a, a ghetto, you know? It was considered like, poor black woman vibes. It was really racist. I mean, there is like legitimate, you can research history on like butts and black women. There is like actually <laughs> historical data here um, with how that was considered like degrading because you don't want to be associated with those quote unquote ghetto features. And like five years ago, that was black. And now these, con- these features are like white because white people have decided they're trendy and taken them. And then black women who have those features are now white passing. So I am really skeptical of the term white passing these days and I don't like it very much because I feel like if anything it's often weaponized to discredit the experiences of women that are ethnic like they are ethnic they might be half white but they're still ethnic that ethnic blood and that ethnic history and that ethnic culture still matters and I see white passing often weaponized against first nations people like this is pretty common in Australia where you like know a first nations person maybe there's a first Nations person at school that has blonde hair and blue eyes and everybody's like, I bet they're faking it. Like, I bet they're faking their identity for benefit. So there's this really, really insidious, nasty, sinister bullying of young First Nations people where people accuse them of faking their identity. That is the weaponizing of white passing, especially like discrediting native status like that. It's kind of messed up because like First Nations people only look the way they do if they look white because like of histories of eugenics and genocide. Like they look like that because white people tried to breed the black out of them. It's you know what I mean? Like, it's actually, they're victims of this situation, and we can't just be like, well, that person's white passing, they don't understand what I experience. And I have had other First Nations women like talk to me about this in the DMs and just say like, they're in this awkward situation because colorism is real. There are First Nations women that looks black. There are other First Nations women that don't look black and there is tension between them because of colorism, because they recognize that they are underprivileged compared to that woman and they're turning against each other. And I'm just like, honestly, a lot of this like is made to divide and conquer. You both First Nations women, like do not let (laughs) the colonizers deceive you like this. I know there's merit to having a conversation about what white passing means. Yes, there are ethnic people that can pass for white due to beauty standards created by white people, not by them, who fetishize these very groups. And yes, that can help lessen some of their racial burdens. And yes, some white passing, I think people perpetuate racism and colorism and should absolutely be shamed and boycotted and held accountable for that. Totally fair. But I feel like a lot of conversations about white passing can do more harm than good. I feel like conversations about white passing are used more so to discredit and gaslight ethnic women who have features that white women stole than it is to actually have genuine, critical conversations about the politics of white proximity, which is why now I try to use terms like white proximity rather than white passing, because I feel like white passing really like puts the blame on ethnic women for something that they didn't do and has nothing to do with them. They were born with those features. Like that's not their fault. So I feel like talking about white proximity is a little bit better because it's also a bit more broad as well. There are so many different ways you can have proximity to whiteness, not just in the way you look, but maybe in who your relatives are and who you're around. I feel like an all around is just a better term and it's less blamey, you know? I feel like white passing implies like that that person has tried to look white. And I just, I don't know, like... At the end of the day, we are still anti-capitalists above all else. And I feel like this is when we need to remember that because white passing and the politics around white passing can kind of fall into a form of identity politics that is actually not helpful to anybody. And I know that's like not what a lot of people want to hear. I feel like when we talk about white passing and we want to talk about all these things, like you want me to say yeah, I know these, these women who look white are weaponizing their proximity to whiteness in order to further subjugate other ethnic women and get ahead. And for some people, maybe that's true, but I just don't know how valuable it is to have that conversation when ethnic women in all forms are already, like, you know, at the bottom rung of society. Like, I'm not going to sit here and talk more shit about those women when everybody else is doing it. Instead, I really think, like, colorism is obviously a huge issue right now. And as somebody who, like, has definitely experienced that in the Pakistani community, I'm aware of it. But, like, all ethnic women are still going to be victims to white supremacy. All of them.
1: Yeah. And- I feel like as you're suggesting, like, the complexion of your skin is only one facet of what is the social implications of race. Yeah. Um, like, e- even if you look white, you'll still have racial, imp- there will still be racial implications in, like, familial relationships or, like, where you live, all these other things. So, there's really just one facet.
0: Yeah. Really a really good example of that, to be honest, lately is, like, hashtag stop Asian hate. There's a lot of weird conversations that I very much disagree about that refer to Asian people as the white people or people of color, which, I mean, I hate that so much because they're still getting massacred and and Asian people are still quite deeply victimized by white supremacy. But there have been conversations around from other ethnic people calling Asian people the white people of people of color because they're lighter skinned. And I think you can have really pale Asian people that are still going to be shot up by a white supremacist because a white supremacist does not give a fuck about how pale or not pale an Asian person is. Y'all are still Asian. You know what I mean? Racist white people don't care how, like they still see you as your ethnicity. So there's no point in us calling each other out like that. I just feel like, It's the same thing with like Asian identities as well. I remember I saw a tweet where some guy was like, you know, my mum was like, okay, you'll be fine because you don't speak Mandarin in public, you speak Thai in public. And I was like, mum, do you really think a white supremacist can tell the difference between Mandarin and, and like Thai? Like, exactly. This is my point. Like, these people don't care about the nuances of our race. So I feel like we should do more to protect each other from white people than we should be fighting amongst each other. Like call out colorism when you see it. But at the end of the day, solidarity is kind of more important. These are issues that we can solve between ourselves. And I don't really want to get like whiteness involved in it because they're already victimizing us as it is. And as we can even see with Black Lives Matter protests and like the death of Adam Toledo, who is like light, lighter than most people in his community still got shot by the cops. Like at the end of the day, these people don't care how light you are. You're still ethnic. I'm going to move on to the second part of that question just really quickly and then I'll be done. (laughs) Is the too white to be brown, too brown to be white situation? Because I feel like the original person who asked the question might've been referring to this in like specifically white passing ethnic people because that's what the original question was about. But I think that's relatable for like any kind of first generation, like ethnic person as well. Like I'm definitely not white passing, but I often also feel like I am Too white for the brown kids, too brown for the white kids, because I'm sitting in like an awkward situation in terms of like a disconnect from my cultural heritage because I wasn't born there, but also like, I'm still brown as fuck. (laughs) Still very, very brown and ethnic. So there are so many ways we can talk about it. You know, there's like, you can still be not accepted by your own community and seen as an intruder and as a colonizer um, by like the really brown community and then not be accepted by the whites because they still see you as ethnic. It's like kind of the same situation, it's isolating, it's lonely, Um, and I guess I kind of want to end it with just, let's talk about accepting our own identities, because I think that is the underlying issue for both the topics that we've talked about today, accepting your own identity is so hard, okay, it is like a lifetime journey, I feel like I didn't really accept my ethnic identity in its fullest core until like months ago, like literally maybe this year, like very recently, because I mean, all the time, like it's hard when you're in a colonizer society. I feel like for a long time, I couldn't really claim brown person status despite being very brown Uh, and being a victim to colorism and being a victim to racism because I'm not brown enough. I don't speak the language. I don't know that much. Like I don't know a huge amount about Pakistani culture. I don't watch Pakistani movies. I've only been to Pakistan once when I was like a wee child. And I often feel like that disconnect makes me unworthy of like claiming Pakistani status or identity, right? Um, And I feel like it's only recently that I've kind of realized that I kind of decide if I'm worthy for that identity. It's, you know, there's this huge journey to eventually understanding that you are your identity just by virtue of existing, okay? I can never be more or less Pakistani than other Pakistanis because just by virtue of being ethnically Pakistani that is who I am like it's literally my blood and it doesn't matter how much I watch or don't watch Pakistani movies or eat or don't eat Pakistani food this is still going to be my culture right and i'm still going to be able to claim it and i feel like this is just a level of gaslighting that we experience because we are disconnected from our culture because we are in a society that tells us we don't fit in and we're seeking that acceptance externally and it's just like your identity is not really, like your racial identity is not really debatable. It's not really a status that changes, you know? So even for white passing people or for people like me, like if you if you or your parents are like from this country or race and that's just who you are. And I think it's, we really have to let go of conversations where we debate how ethnic somebody is based on their behavior because it's not interchangeable like that. And they're, you know, You are your race. Like if a black person is black, it doesn't matter how much white media they consume, a cop is still going to see them as black and a threat. You know what I mean? Like there's no form of of assimilation that's ever going to disconnect us from our race. So it's something we need to accept. And it takes a lot of introspection and self-love and empathy, I think, to get to the point where you're like at peace with your racial identity and you're just like, yep, this is who I am and I don't need to justify it to anybody else um and this is my identity and i can claim it and i own it and if i'm going to experience the worst parts of it if i'm going to have to experience the racism that comes with it then i get to claim the positive elements of it too that's where we should be
1: cool well thanks for listening to our second quote unquote minisode
0: we're really failing at the minisode thing yeah
1: maybe not so many uh but nonetheless like we said we will just be charging for every second uh episode on our patreon and speaking of patreon we'd like to give a special special thank you to our lovely lovely patrons specifically pia beck rachelle sarah liz bell and katie so thank you so much
0: if you thought our discussion today was interesting or thought-provoking or something you learned from please consider donating to our patreon at patreon.com forward slash if signing up isn't your thing, you can also donate to our PayPal link at paypal.me forward slash Sliha to support future episodes. Both the PayPal and their Patreon links are in my Instagram bio, so check them out over there at Sliha Official and give me a follow if you like today's episode.
1: And follow my Instagram at mishes.miscellanea for discussions around film, books and music.
0: Also, if you have any comments or suggestions or you want to add to the discussion, you can DM me or email us at here's a thing though podcast at gmail.com. And please include your name, pronouns, and any other important info. Also, please feel free to send us questions for the next two weeks because we are basing our Minnesotes during Ramadan around listener questions. So basically, doing long form answers to your questions. And of course, remember to follow and subscribe. It really helps the podcast get out there. Thank you. Bye. Bye.